welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past episodes by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. So we are going to continue our Vegan Voices series, wrapping it up with two more authors from the Vegan Voices anthology that was edited by Joanne Kong. I've had four authors on from this book recently, uh, just last month, including Joanne, and we're going to now have two more to finish off the series. Today, I have a lovely conversation with Larry Weiss to share with you, an animal law attorney and animal defender in Colorado. Larry and I go way back. We've been dear friends for a long time, and we did activism together in the North Bay area in the 90s when I was doing some much more radical activism, direct action and lockdowns and getting arrested, and Larry represented me on more than a few a few occasions in court. But before we get into that interview, I want to start by announcing our contest winners. So we did a Vegan Voices series contest where I asked listeners to post positive reviews for the podcast and then let me know and so that I could enter them into the contest. And the winner will receive the Vegan Voices anthology. Thank you all who participated for your kind words and your reviews and your posts. I really appreciate it. Okay, so I picked two winners just because I can and I wanted to spread the love a little wider. So the winners of the Vegan Voices contest are, drumroll please, Katrina Reamer and Kelly Lowen. Thank you both so much for your reviews and for listening and for your support and congratulations to Katrina and Kelly. I will be sending you both each a copy of the Vegan Voices Anthology. So before we get to the interview, I do have a bit of news and some thoughts to share. And I want to start with a lament that the Bearded Vegans podcast, my favorite, my personal favorite podcast, has ended. Oh, so sad. Wah, wah. They had their last show, episode 300, uh, recently, last week, and Andy Tabar, one of the Bearded Vegans, has been on this podcast twice, and he, he Andy was really an inspiration to me to start my own podcast, and I'm just heartbroken to see it end, but I, I know, I mean, I literally know how much work a podcast is. And for activists like Andy and I, we do it all ourselves, production and editing and promotion. And all this is very time consuming. And I completely understand after 300 episodes needing to step away. But I do believe that it's a huge loss to the vegan discourse and the vegan community. And I'm glad that those 300 episodes exist. Anyway, I just wanted to bid a fond farewell to the Bearded Vegans, and I really wish Andy and Paul the best on their post-podcast journey. I almost said post-pandemic journey. Hopefully that too, but post-podcast journey. So something I wanted to talk to you about, I I recently posted a vegan Thanksgiving image or meme or something. It was something about, you know, happy Thanksgiving, leave turkeys off your plate or something like that. And someone posted in the comments a picture of someone, and I assume it was whoever made this post, holding a turkey upside down by his legs with a caption that was something like, or the words were something like, 25 pounder for our Thanksgiving feast. So uh, the assumption was that he had hunted this bird and was about to kill him or had already killed him. It was a little unclear from the picture. And I, I usually just delete posts like this. Sometimes I block people depending on the aggressiveness of the comments I get. I mean, I, I get all kinds of comments, you know, the highly original "Mm, bacon (laughs) Uh, or things like that, you know, I'm going to go eat a steak now because I saw this post or 
stuff like that. I even get death threats on occasion where someone says something like, you know, I'm going to slit your throat and skin you and eat you or whatever. Um, It's a really horrible thing to wake up to, I have to say. (laughs) You know, I check the Facebook comments first thing when I log in in the morning just because I want to catch things like this. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's not a great way to start your day. But uh, I try to look on it positively in that the posts are reaching beyond the vegan bubble, you know, outside to non-vegans and hopefully, hopefully reaching people with that will have sympathy and empathy. And that's what we want. Uh, Anyway, this particular comment and, and image and picture, though, was really disturbing, really egregious because it depicted animal abuse because this poor turkey was being displayed upside down. So I decided to report it. And it was really eye-opening to go through that process with Facebook. And the first option I chose when it said, you know, report this, it was something like violence. It had violence. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's do that one. It's violent, violence towards animals. And then when you got deeper, the next option, there was an option for animal abuse. I was like, ah, yes. Okay, good. I'm going to choose that one. But then there was a pop-up with some information and it was, I, you know, their policy, I guess, on animal abuse. And I want to read this to you. So it said, Facebook, animal abuse. We don't allow things like content showing, admitting to, or encouraging harm against animals. Okay, good. They also don't allow staged animal fights. Good. What we do allow, so we do allow content about hunting, fishing, religious sacrifice, food preparation and processing, pest control, and self-defense. So the only thing on this list that is not animal abuse I would say would be self-defense, maybe pest control in some rare instances. Everything else is socially acceptable animal abuse. And I thought of the photo and realized that they probably wouldn't consider this animal abuse because it was depicting hunting and, and that's on their allowed list, right? I reported it anyway, but it was kind of heartbreaking to realize that there are so many forms of acceptable animal abuse and killing, socially sanctioned animal exploitation. But what I also thought was interesting was the contradictory nature of the statements, right, about the things that were allowed and not allowed. So it's not allowed to show admit, or encourage harm against animals. But hunting, fishing, meat-eating is allowed. So how is a picture of a turkey caught, hunted, hanging upside down, how is that not showing harm towards animals, right? It's a total contradiction. How is showing meat preparation or or encouraging meat-eating not encouraging harm towards animals because it's encouraging buying tortured animals who suffered in animal agriculture. It's, it's completely inconsistent, incoherent. I mean, how can you kill an animal in hunting, fishing, meat eating, and not be showing, admitting, and encouraging animal abuse? It's conflicting information. We're in such denial about how these common practices hurt animals. It was really interesting, the the cognitive dissonance in this uh, policy. So in other news, I had something else I wanted to talk about that I found interesting, and it's actually happening in Colorado, where Larry lives, and I really wish that I had heard about it before our interview, so I could have asked him about it, but it only came to my attention recently after Larry and I had recorded the interview. And what it is, is that there is a group of activists attempting to get an initiative on the ballot in Colorado for the midterms in 2022. 
The initiative is called PAWS. It's an acronym and it's not P-A-W-S, it's P-A-U-S-E. And it stands for Protect Animals from Unnecessary Suffering and Exploitation. I have no idea where they are in the process. I think they're gathering signatures. I really don't know much about it. And and I'll say by talking about this, we are not necessarily endorsing this initiative, nor am I getting into the debate about the effectiveness of ballot measures. There's a lot of up and down and back and forth about that. I, that's not why I'm bringing this up. I want to talk about it because I feel it's really creative what they're doing. The angle that they're taking is just interesting, and I want to share it with you. So what this initiative asks for is to extend current animal protection laws for companion animals to farmed animals with provisions like, and and now I'm going to read from the initiative, uh, to not overload, overwork, torment, deprive of necessary sustenance, or unnecessarily or cruelly beat an animal. So that's all good. But here's the rub in the fine print. So they make an exception for farmed animals to be allowed to be slaughtered, as opposed to companion animals, where, you know, if you kill a companion animal, it is illegal and could possibly get you felony charges in some states. So they make this exception that farmed animals can be slaughtered for their meat. However, the animal gets to live one quarter of their natural lifespan according to species. Sounds reasonable, right? Okay, so I'm going to get back to that. But the other interesting provision is that it would prohibit a sexual act with an animal, and I'm going to read from the initiative again, and please pardon the the crude language, but it would uh, prohibit any intrusion or penetration, however slight, with an object or part of a person's body into an animal's anus or genitals. Okay, so... All this sounds really straightforward and reasonable, right? I mean, very reasonable to someone who wants humane treatment of animals. Sure, they should be able to live a quarter of their lifespan without being sexually violated, right? Sounds so reasonable. Well, the activists know, and some of you out there might be already getting it, But animal agriculture, as we know it, really couldn't exist, couldn't be profitable under these restraints. I mean, if this passed the way it is written right now, it could possibly effectively end industrial farming of animals in Colorado, even though it sounds so reasonable. I just, I love this. <laughs> it's really clever on the part of whoever came up with this. Good job. Okay, so why would these seemingly reasonable asks be so detrimental to the industry? So first, the allowing farmed animals to live a quarter of their lifespan. Let's, let's look at that. Most people don't realize, but animals are slaughtered so young, so young, they're just babies. Animals bred for meat go to slaughter in just months from being born. Most male chicks born to chickens that are bred for eggs are killed within hours of being hatched. Chickens bred for meat are killed at about 5 to 7 weeks old. Turkeys at about 10 to 17 weeks. Pigs about 5 to 8 months. Lambs are about the same, 5 to 8 months. And cows about a year. 12 to 18 months for cows. The turnover is so fast in these confinement buildings, especially for the smaller animals, that these buildings are are cleared out and filled up with young animals two or three times a year, sometimes more. So if this measure passed and the industry in Colorado had to allow farmed animals to live a quarter of their lifespan, That would be several more years for each species. So they would have to keep them alive in these buildings, giving them grain and feeding them water. The profit loss would be catastrophic. They just couldn't do it. Just feeding animals for years and no income? 
the system just wouldn't function, couldn't function under those conditions. But if you ask a random person off the street if they feel that the animals killed for their food should be allowed to live just a quarter of their lifespan, I think most people would say, yeah, sure, that sounds really reasonable, actually pretty minimal. And that's the beauty or the sting of this initiative. So now let's look at the other interesting provision about not sexually violating an animal. To penetrate a companion animal with anything is considered criminal, and it's bestiality. So again, this seems pretty reasonable, right? That this shouldn't happen to farmed animals. However, most all farmed animals now are bred with artificial insemination, which requires workers to insert devices and hands and whole arms into the animals. I won't go into the disgusting details beyond that, but I encourage you to watch videos of artificial insemination if you're not familiar with it. So dairy production, pig production, turkey production, they rely almost entirely on artificial insemination. Once again, if these restrictions became law, they wouldn't be able to do business. I mean, turkeys, they haven't been able to breed naturally for years. They're so genetically manipulated and they grow so big, so fast, they're unable to breed naturally. But if you ask any consumer of animal products if it would be okay to sexually violate and penetrate Uh, animals that they're eating, it's likely most people would say, uh, no, that's not okay. (laughs) So I just, I can't imagine that they will have any luck getting this passed. I'm sure the farm lobby will fight this tooth and nail, but I can see it easily getting on the ballot and being able to get the signatures they need and it being an educational tool while collecting the signatures. I mean, just saying to someone, So do you agree that animals should be able to live one quarter of their lifespan and not be sexually violated? Well, of course. I mean, what kind of jerk would say no to that, (laughs) you know? Uh, But in the process, people then learn that actually the animals that they are eating don't get to live even a fraction of their natural lifespan and are regularly genitally and anally penetrated. So really great educational opportunity here. And again, I will say we're not taking a position on this. I just think it's a really interesting conversation. And and I'll add that I'm really impressed. I'm impressed with the cleverness of this. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it really gives me hope that we can come up with new and clever and interesting angles and ways to do our activism. So, uh, yeah, just just really, really interesting. Okay, enough of my musings. (laughs) Let's get on to the fifth installment of the Vegan Voices series and hear from my dear friend Larry. Okay, I am so happy to bring in our guest today, Larry Weiss. He is a retired attorney who earned a BA from the University of Chicago and a law degree from the University of California at Berkeley. And he practiced law in California for 36 years, first as a criminal defense attorney and then in the field of animal law. And Larry specialized in the defense of animal activists. Larry believes that the exploitation of animals is a branch of the pervasive tree of dominance that exists within our society. And he now lives in Colorado with his lovely wife, Janet. Welcome to the podcast, Larry. Well, thank you, Hope. It's so good to talk to you. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Let's start at the very beginning, uh, which I believe was a few decades ago, and that's when you went vegan. I would love to know when you went vegan and why you went vegan. What is your vegan origin story? Well, I went vegetarian around 1985 and then vegan around 2010. 
I wish I had skipped those 26 years in between and gone directly to veganism, but I didn't understand at the time how harmful dairy is to the animals, to your body, and to the earth. But here's how I first became vegetarian. I was an animal rights attorney defending the activists. And I went out to lunch with the activists and they all ordered vegan and I ordered something with chicken in it. They didn't say anything, but they all looked, they just looked at me and I knew that I couldn't speak for them. If I was eating the animals, that they were going to jail to defend and protect. And that was a hinge moment in my life and I've never looked back since or regretted it. It was the beginning of a path of compassion and yoga and meditation. It was one of the main decisions, best decisions in my life. Yeah, um, I, I, I know that you defended many an activist back uh, in the 80s, 90s, and we were doing some some pretty radical activism back then. And you and I go way back. We met back when I discovered SPAR, Sonoma People for Animal Rights in Sonoma County, uh, back in the early 90s. And you, I believe, were one of the founding members of SPAR in the 80s. Is that correct? Well, actually, it had existed a couple years before I joined up. Okay. It existed since around 1980, and I found SPAR around 1984 or so. So I actually wasn't a founding member, but I became totally committed to the fact that animals are not ours to eat or wear or experiment upon. And finding that gave me a purpose because I was pretty much burned out with criminal defense work, and I wanted a purpose, something that would make a difference in the world. And SPAR gave me that. And I will be eternally grateful. And I will be eternally grateful also for the people that we met. You and several other people have changed my life. I, I will never be able to repay that. It was a great gift to me, Hope. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, those days were really powerful because there were so few of us, so few vegans, so few uh, animal rights defenders. Uh, so we were a very tight-knit family, really. It felt, I, I feel like it felt much more intimate than just, just in that there were so few of us. But, uh, but I'm glad it has expanded. I'm glad there's so many more of us now, of yeah. course. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I am too. But at the beginning, well, you know how it was at the beginning of SPAR. There were so many chicken ranches and, and such in, in Sonoma County, and, and we did protests and we did educational events and we did vegan potlucks. We were like a voice in the wilderness and I'm glad we did it. Yeah. And, and I think it was something that when we look back at the end of our life, and I'm, I'm getting there, when you look back at the end of your life, you say, man, I'm glad I did that. It was worth doing. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, and we, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I will hear uh, young activists that are doing kind of more radical stuff like disruptions and things like that will say, you know, well, this is the first time this has ever been done. And I kind of chuckle because <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> we were doing that back in the 90s and in the 80s. And, uh, you know, but, but we didn't have the internet. So nobody knows what we did back then. <laughs> there was, there's no record, really. We barely had cameras at the events, you know, because the cameras were kind of these big, bulky, expensive things, you know. <laughs> I remember going to the slaughterhouse and the line of police in front of us. And, and those, were, those were important beginnings. Someone has to do something first. Yes. And I felt that SPAR was that organization. And that's something to be proud of, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. And and what we did a lot of was kind of more radical uh, activism. We did a lot of protests and lockdowns and blockades of slaughterhouses and things like that. I mean, we, yeah, we went for it and uh, it was really uh, powerful. And, you know, I, I think at times for me, very frustrating because we didn't have the social media outlet that activists do today to be able to tell their own stories. We only had, you know, I mean, the only people that, that often the only people that saw us do what we were doing were the, you know, 20 people that would drive by. And the uh, police. 
and the police, exactly. And the police and the, and the 57 police that showed up, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, those were the days. <laughs> well, and Larry, something that I wanted to tell you and tell you publicly on this podcast is that, you know, something that I loved about you, even though those were some of my more radical activist days, and we were doing some pretty aggressive protesting and direct actions, uh, things that you know I, I certainly don't don't do now. I've moved and shifted to more uh, vegan education. But even though we were doing that kind of aggressive stuff, you always had this really wonderfully calm presence really a, a spiritual quality, really like a, a compassion and a peaceful energy that I just loved and I wanted to emulate. So I wanted you to know that you were really influential to me in showing me that you can be strong, you can stand up for the animals, but still be compassionate and loving and kind. And I always appreciated that about you. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you, Hope. That's one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. Oh, <laughs> uh, and it, it's what I aspire to be is a compassionate activist. Those two things can go together. You can have your heart chakra open at the same time as you state and stand for your beliefs. Yes. So this episode is part of a series, the Vegan Voices series for this anthology that has come out, edited by Joanne Kong, and you've written a beautiful poem in this anthology. Tell us about the poem that you wrote. Well, this is a great book that's coming out, Vegan Voices. Yeah. Because it's meant to speak to people who are on the path. It's, it's less about the facts and figures and the suffering, and it's more about the journey of people to compassion. And 50 different people from 50 different walks of life have taken this path and what led us to become vegan and what this is meant to our life. But to every person in this book, it was a crucial decision. And the benefits of making that decision will continue for the rest of our lives. I decided to contribute a, a poem to it and I'll read a short excerpt. The whole thing is quite long and I wrote, so I'm just going to read an excerpt and here it is. I look at my plate of greens like the earth in its innocence, and wonder how I came to this place late in life after eating animals whose names I cannot remember. There is a place where we see each other face to face, no attempt to distance or edit. And there is inexhaustible power in this vision of all species thriving together, a spiral journey that begins on my plate and leads to peace of mind, body, and spirit. So rejoice in nonviolence and the yoga of geese. Mm, beautiful. I know that's the, the end of the poem because I remember you ended the poem with that line and the yoga of geese. <laughs> and I thought that was so beautiful. My mind went immediately to seeing geese flying in formation and how peaceful and, and incredible that is. I, I love that moment, that uh, last line. What, what, what were you thinking about with that last line? I, I had a very literal version of it actually, because I used to live on an animal sanctuary and the, it was on the flyway for geese. And when they would stop and rest, I would often see them with one wing pointed forward and the opposite leg pointed backwards. I would see them in that pose. It was either a stretching pose or a resting pose. But to me, it always reminded me of yoga. Huh. And I thought of the, the similarities we have, the feelings we share together. It meant a lot of things to me, but what it mainly meant was that we are one and we have the same desire for a happy, safe, and caring life. I love that. And Actually, I just observed uh, a squirrel doing this stretch. He was, he was face down on a tree trunk. His legs pointed upward, his back legs pointed upward. 
And his front body actually came off the tree trunk in this stretch downward. And I, and I thought too, I was like, wow, that squirrel's doing some yoga. (laughs) (laughs) Downward squirrel. Yeah. Downward squirrel. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. Oh, well, it's a really beautiful poem. It's such a wonderful uh, addition to the anthology. And of course, I'll put a link uh, to where people can uh, get that anthology in the show notes. Uh, did you want to mention anything else about the poem? What I know that in you have the theme of your work in the poem, the, the work that you did defending the animal activists is in the poem, uh, yeah. the work you did as a lawyer for the activists, which is really cool. Well, my feeling about the activists I defended was that they're heroes. They were heroes then, they're heroes now. And each of them put their, their freedom on the line. Some of them went to jail and some of them went to prison for what they believed. And I, I have infinite respect for that. So I felt that my contribution could be defending them since I knew criminal law. And I'd always felt that they were doing the hard part and I was just doing what, what I knew. Mm. But they were the ones that were putting their lives on the line. And I, I wanted to be a part of that. This was an issue that was not being addressed at that time, animal suffering. And I felt that later on in my life, I would look back and say, I wanted to be a part of that at the beginning. Mm, Wonderful. Yeah. So we knew each other in the 90s, but I know that you go back even further than that, like you were saying, from the 80s. I wondered if you could give us some history of the movement, what it was like to be an animal rights activist uh, back in the 70s and the 80s. Well, starting around 1975, there was a, a new feeling in the air. The 60s and 70s were a time of great turmoil and all the isms were being challenged, colonialism, sexism, racism. And it occurred to a few of us that there was another one, speciesism. This was something we felt was not being addressed anywhere else. And at the time, there wasn't even a word for speciesism. We had to invent it. At the beginning, and I wasn't there in the 70s, I have to add that I didn't come in until about 1984, so the movement had already begun, especially in animal law by people like Joyce Tischel and a few others. But At the very beginning, in the late 70s and early 80s, we were considered oddballs and people were making jokes about us. But what that covered up, and it was was quite obvious to we who were doing it, that they were covering up something they didn't want to look at. They didn't want to look at the suffering they were inflicting every day on animals. It was so ingrained in the society that they didn't even see it anymore. And those who pointed it out made them uncomfortable. So that's what the very early days were like. And I can talk about what we did, but uh, that may be another question. (laughs) Well, if you'd like to, I mean, you know, I I remember then in the 90s, you know, we uh, we definitely it's interesting because because the focus has kind of shifted in that now we are so focused on farmed animals and rightly so because it is the vast majority of animals that suffer and die at human hands. Uh, But back then we were more focused on fur and anti-vivisection. What we consider now kind of the side issues were more front and center. Well, that's true. And it, it may be because those were the ones we felt we could address first. Yeah. Given our belief that animals were not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, we had to decide which were the issues that we could make progress on. And so we did companion animals, spay and neuter. There's spay and neuter bans all over the place. Most SBCAs won't even adopt unless the animal has been spayed and neutered first. We made cruelty laws in all 50 states. There were misdemeanors in 50 states, a few felonies. And by the end of the 90s, all 50 states had felony animal cruelty laws. So Mm -hmm. those were the kind of things we felt we could do. We highlighted cruelty issues in animals at entertainment. What happens to the animals in circuses? What happens to them at zoos? What happens to them at rodeos? We boycotted, we 
protesting. We felt that we could make headway on those issues. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess, you know, when we first started, the idea was that, oh, well, you know, how are we, how on earth are we going to get people to care or to, to, to stop eating meat? Maybe they could uh, not go to the circus or maybe buy a non-animal tested product, but changing their entire diet, you know, it just seems so uh, far out of the realm of possibilities that we focused on other things or getting them to not buy a fur coat. Those, those things seemed, I guess, more feasible. And maybe that's why we started there. But I think that the good work that was done and the exposure uh, about how these animals suffer, how they are individuals and deserve to live free, that work expanded us into being able to talk about animal agriculture and to get the, the bigger picture, which really is vegan. And you know, I think what was finally realized around the 90s was that if we shift our focus to animal agriculture and to trying to get someone to go vegan, that all the other issues fall into place. You know, if you are vegan and you're daily considering avoiding animal products in your food, then that's going to translate into you not buying a fur coat and to not buy animal tested products and things like that. So that it kind of encompassed everything under the umbrella of veganism. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I consider the path and use that word a lot. Veganism is a large part of a path and it's a path of compassion. And that's the spiritual element. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's a path of continuously trying to improve ourselves, improve our relationship to the world, improve uh, our impact on the world. So, yeah, I do see I I do see veganism as a spiritual path. Absolutely, I see them paralleled. The hardest issue then and the hardest issue now is the issue of animal agriculture, because people don't want to give up their traditional foods. Yeah. yeah. And we knew that at the time, and we tackled those issues, but it was mainly those issues that people had to go undercover to mm -hmm. find out what was really happening behind those high walls. And those were the people that would go in at night, and those were the people who were arrested, and the ones who I defended. Yeah. Our greatest tool then and now is the undercover video. In the 80s and 90s, we were discovering the power of media. And we didn't have the internet then to the extent we do now, but we had television and we got these horrible shots of animals being tortured in labs or what actually happens in slaughterhouses. We could get them on TV sometimes, but now they're all over the place. Undercover videos our greatest friend. Yeah, very true. And those activists, I mean, talk about heroes and being, yes. you know, having to be brave and courageous and kind of compartmentalize. Woo. I mean, being able to go into these places and really, uh, and they, and, and I feel like the worst part of it is that they have to pretend like they're just part of the people that abuse animals, you know, it's amazing to me that they can do it, but thank God they can and bless their hearts for doing it, you know, because it's true. It's the only way that we're able to show people what is truly going on in these places. And every time they come out, it's horrible, horrible, horrible video. Yeah, it's, uh, you're right. It's, it's some of the most powerful tools that we have are these undercover videos. Yeah. So talking about how important undercover videos are, the ag-gag laws are something that's been a backlash to that success, the, the success that we've had of getting that footage through undercover investigators. Can you talk about those ag-gag laws? I know being a lawyer, you're kind of connected, you know about it a bit. Would you kind of let us know what the ag-gag laws are? And I know that we've been successful in, in stopping a lot of them in, in some states. So can you talk about the ag-gag laws? Sure. The ag-gag laws refer to the legislation in many rural states that criminalize either the taking of undercover videos without permission of the owners 
or the gaining of employment at that facility with an intent to take undercover videos or observe things that they don't want observed. So the purpose of the law is to shield the public from finding out what really goes on in those facilities. And those laws are stated in various ways, but they have those two-pronged elements. Number one, prohibiting undercover videos without the consent of the ownership, which you're never going to get, or taking employment for purposes other than doing the slaughtering or the uh, breeding of the animals. So it's a two-pronged thing, and the ag-gag laws prohibit one other or both of those. And they generally are felonies, which means that you can go to prison if you are found guilty of having transgressed either of those two prongs. So we challenged, we being attorneys in the field, especially Animal Legal Defense Fund, but other attorneys also, challenge the constitutionality of those laws on the basis of free speech. That the purpose of the undercover videos was to spread information and to use the trespass laws to prohibit the spreading of information that is crucial to the public health is a violation of your First Amendment rights. And the courts in several states, the federal courts in several states have agreed that it was more important to get this information out. So that is what we have been doing is, is challenging the ag-gag laws. But what we're really challenging is the practices in those facilities. Yeah. So many people who eat meat don't know the suffering. Either they don't want to know or they just didn't have the means to find out. And if they don't want to know, that's a different issue. And they turn off the television, they turn off the computer, they turn off everything. But for those people who actually didn't know and who are appalled by that suffering, the undercover videos are our greatest tool. And the agriculture industry realizes that. And that is the purpose of the ag-gag yeah, it's it's amazing to me that there is an industry <laughs> that has to go to such extremes as to pass laws to criminalize having pictures taken in their facilities. I, I mean, I, I just can't imagine how anyone would think that that's okay. You know, of course we should be able to take pictures and videos of any facility, any business, any industry. I mean, if they have to go to those extremes to hide what they're doing, you don't think something is wrong, that something is going terribly wrong in those places. You know, it's amazing to me. That's true. And that, that's why we are seeing that as the battlefront right now, those laws. And what they're trying to do is modify those laws in various ways to make them more amenable to judges. And they're trying to add, emphasize the trespass part as opposed to the information part, trying to get one that will pass constitutional muster. But so far, they have not done that. They have been unsuccessful in defending the ag-gag laws. Hmm. Wow. So Larry, being a lawyer, I know that you are in the realm of uh, legislation and animal law and politicians and legislators are so much more willing to pass companion animal protection bills. They're very resistant to any legislation in the farmed animal realm. And that has to do with the power of the farm lobby. Can you talk about that? Let's start with cats and dogs because that's where you started. Everybody loves dogs and cats, so it's easy to pass that kind of legislation. 90% of the state will do it. Changing animal agriculture, it's more difficult. It's far more difficult because you will get real opposition and the legislators need courage to do that. The outsized power of the farm lobby is evident everywhere. Even though most people live in urban states throughout the country, 
There are more rural states than urban states. And so the whole power structure is skewed toward animal agriculture. You encounter this at the state level. You encounter this at the federal level. And this is the reason why I have been advocating for about a decade now that we make progressive legislation in the cities because the city councils are not beholden to the farm lobby. There are few or no farms in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. They don't have to listen to the power of the farm lobby. And there will always be contributions by the farm lobby to certain politicians and not another, but their power is far less at the city level. So how are we going to translate this in, into legislation that helps animals? We do it from the purchasing end. What I mean is this, all cities buy food and buy dairy. What if they didn't? Less and less and less purchased by cities of meat and dairy. And that's what the Berkeley City Council has done. You've probably seen that, that they've just passed resolutions saying that they're moving toward meat-free and dairy-free purchases by the city of Berkeley. They're the first, and it's Berkeley. But somebody has to be first, and I, I am so grateful to them for being first and saying that. My entire point here is that the cities have power. Traditionally, the cities have been more concerned with having the sewers run correctly and the buses run correctly and the trains running on time, they can do much more from the purchasing end because that is where most of the people live. And that's where you're going to get the most animal friendly legislation by using the purchasing power of the cities. And if the cities say, we will only buy certain food then this will make all the difference in the world, but you have to convince the city council that they can do more and be braver than they have been in the past. You're right. It just sets a precedent, right? So if these laws can be passed in some places, then it's going to expand uh, out to other places. So uh, yeah, so it sounds like cities are a great place to start that process. Yeah. And also tying it into their, uh, their climate change proposals, often cities are looking for ways that they can reduce their climate impact and they will make resolutions or amendments or whatever to reduce their climate impact. And it can go into those packages as well. Uh, reducing the meat consumption, of course, reduces climate impact. So yeah. it can be sold to them that way as well. Well, Larry, it's been wonderful talking to you. I want to ask you a final question, and I ask all my guests this, so I'd love to ask you as well. What gives you hope for the future? If we have learned anything from these last few years, it is that we don't want an unsustainable world, a world built on cruelty and domination. Sometimes the first step to change is knowing what you don't want. And yeah. we know what we don't want because we've been there. Yeah. I've seen changes that make me hopeful. It was because of the protests and boycotts that Barnum and Bailey stopped using elephants and SeaWorld ultimately stopped breeding orchids. And many businesses have adopted a more humane ethic. And I'm not saying they did this totally because they have golden hearts. It's good for their bottom line, too. Yeah. Because more people are aware through social media of what actually goes on in factory farms, what actually goes on in slaughterhouses, how the oceans are dying, how plastic pollution is everywhere. So the businesses see that they can appeal to people by having a more humane and environmentally conscious product. That gives me great hope. Another hopeful sign is the recent Berkeley City Council decision that I referred to. They have decided that they are moving toward a meat-free and dairy-free city. And they want to encourage that in their own purchases. This gives me enormous hope. And most importantly of all is that people are going vegan in droves. Almost every restaurant I go to 
has vegan options. And when you use the word vegan, they know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I live in Denver and there are a number of all vegan restaurants. So there must be a lot of people to support that lifestyle. So despite everything that is going on in the world right now, the pandemic, racial inequality, economic dislocation, I have hopes for a better world. Mm, yeah, wonderful. And yeah, and, and folks like us that are long time in this for decades, we remember back when there was hardly anything. I mean, you know, it's like if you wanted a vegan cookie, you had to bake it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> there just really wasn't anything. Uh, it was very sparse and, you know, you had your few options at the, the little health food store, but that was it. And uh, yeah. so it's, we've come so far. It's really, really hopeful to see. Yes, I totally agree, and uh, I'm happy to have been part of all of that. I'm happy to have shared that with you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny because I think back and like in the early 90s, like, where did we go to lunch? I'm sure we went out to lunch. Were there places? I guess we, found, we figured it out. <laughs> there would be the, the Buddha's delight at the Chinese restaurant. And that was. Yeah, we would go to Asian restaurants. Yes, always. Thank, thank goodness for the Chinese restaurants. You could always find something there. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing the interview. I appreciate it. Okay, dear. Let's keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. So we have one more author to feature in the Vegan Voices series, and that will be the amazing Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns coming up on the next episode, and that will wrap up our series. This will be Karen's fourth appearance on the show, and she is always so knowledgeable, so passionate, and her article in the Vegan Voices Anthology was, was really amazing. So I hope that you are loving the podcast. If so, please share it with a friend. If you listen on an app, give us that five-star rating. It helps so much, and any way that you can help us to spread the word is so appreciated. So I want to end the show a little differently today as we had a poet on, which is rare. So I want to leave you with another excerpt from Larry's poem in Vegan Voices. But now I see the gentle cow, their soft eyes, and pigs rubbing against me, with love like trees whose lifting branches speak of peace in sap and leaf. We can't understand it, but we can be it. And somehow, less afraid, I struggle with my small self to cry out and then act. For God has no hands but these, and it is not a fork in the road, but a fork in my hands that points the way to a caring world. It is our own souls we are destroying. So beautiful. Thank you, Larry Weiss, for that amazing poem. I hope you enjoy this holiday season, and please live vegan. <laughs>